are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Job. Tonight, we're looking together at chapter 3. And you'll find this on page 418 of the Pew Bible. And we'll read the entire chapter together. This is Job chapter 3, Job lamenting. Hear the word of God. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish in which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb, and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet, I would have slept, then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth, who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light, There the wicked cease from troubling. There the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Last time we considered Job. Three of his friends had arrived to comfort him. He'd lost everything. His children, his possessions, his health, and at least temporarily the support of his loving wife. In the midst of her own despair, we understand that she lost heart and said, curse God and die. And yet Job did not sin with his lips. And it was a magnificent triumph of God's grace. In coming to console Job, his three friends were doing the right thing. They did what no other friends would do, not even Job's beloved wife. 
For seven days they sat with him, sympathized with him, did not say a thing to him. It says no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. And of course, it would have been the height of eccentricity to remain silent indefinitely. Someone needed to break the silence and address the issue at hand. For as long as they did not speak a word, Job would have felt isolated. He was lonely in his suffering. His friends were there, but there was no speech. They didn't know quite what to say. No one was able to fully understand. Job had gone from the very heights of prosperity to the lowest depths of adversity. And his friends could not possibly understand. He was alone in his suffering. Christopher Ashe is right. He says, suffering isolates. Even trivial suffering cuts us off from something. The sufferer misses out on times of fellowship or celebration, or work, or play. And this is especially true when the suffering is intense and severe. Uh, severe. Job's loneliness was acute. But after seven days of sitting silently with his friends, he finally opened his mouth, and in verses 1 through 10, he offers his first lament and curses the day of his birth. After long restraint, Job lets go a burst of feeling, a vehement cry, he doesn't curse God, doesn't curse himself, doesn't curse anybody else. He curses his birthday. His hope for the future is but a flicker. And all that he can do now is look back. It's a heartfelt, emotion-filled outburst in which he expresses the depths of his sorrow. And like the Christ whom he reflects, he himself was a man of sorrows. We see this not so much in his outward conduct as in the anguish of his heart. In desperation, he reflects upon his birthday and he wishes that it never happened. Let the day perish on which I was born. The depth and the extent of his suffering is so great that he wished he had never come into this earth. His poetic lament bewails that day as the beginning of his earthly trials. And though he has enjoyed such blessing, the current suffering outweighs anything he had enjoyed previously. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. And again, as verse 5 says, let deep darkness claim it. Verse 6, thick darkness sees it. It's not a reference to the ordinary darkness that is characteristic of night. It's total darkness. It's like the Egyptian darkness that could be felt. It's like the darkness that enveloped the earth when the Lord Jesus yielded up his spirit. Job's, Job asks that there be no joy whatsoever associated with the day of his birth. He calls upon those who curse days to curse the day that he was born. Not that he's a pagan, but he calls upon the occultic wizards who are pagan. He's not a Satanist, but he's willing to let the Satanists do their worst when it comes to his birthday. They're the ones who curse the days and despise life and hate the living God. So in effect, so miserable am I, he says, let them destroy my birthday from the calendar. Because for Job, everything is wearisome. You may have had days like that. Life has no joy for him. 
no relish, no savor. In a very poetic way, he says in hindsight that his life is not worth living. So grievous are his tribulations that he looks back with total regret and he despairs of life. The same sentiment apparently was shared by the Apostle Paul when he says we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. He was so overwhelmed by his trials that but for grace he would have despaired of living. If Job could, if Job was permitted, he would have taken his own life. But that would be wrong. And he knew it. So the next best thing, annul his birth. Would that God had blotted out the day of conception from existence. He's in misery. But the most disconcerting thing in Job's thinking is his confusion about God. Why has this happened? Where is the God whom I served all those years? Where is the God whom I worshipped? It seems as if he has forsaken me and I'm left to rot in despair. And the afflictions are overwhelming him and his misery is deeply painful. Some commentators I've read accuse him of sinful impatience. <laughs> I think they underestimate the pain and the suffering associated with his afflictions. The only perfect man who ever lived remained silent without complaint. Everybody else has said something. But Job is a redeemed sinner. He's an imperfect man, but he loved the Lord and he did not sin with his lips. He did not curse God and in that way grace triumphed. But then in the second paragraph of this lament, Job asks a series of penetrating questions. His point is this, if I had to be born, why couldn't I have died at birth? Why couldn't I have been a stillborn child to avoid all of this misery? Why, why, why? Lord, why am I alive? Lord, why am I suffering like this? And I think most, if not all, who suffer at some point ask the why question. And as in the case of Job, so with us, we're often not told why we suffer. We don't know. And on this side of heaven, we only know that God is good and God does good. And the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead fuel our hopes for the future. In the empty tomb of Jesus, we can weigh everything from an eternal perspective. He cried out in agony and he paid an awful price and then was laid in the tomb. And on Friday, when everything looked bleakest, Sunday was coming and nothing looked even better than that. But Job's faith was weak and his hopes were obscure and his mind was fixated on the escape by death. You know, when the Judeans were in Babylonian exile, they despaired of ever returning to Israel. They realized how unworthy they were and how difficult the return would be. But God said that he would restore their fortunes for his own namesake. They were corrupt and defiled, but God had done a mighty work. And this is what he says in Isaiah 48. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. You know something? It's often in the furnace of affliction that the Holy Spirit does his best work. 
When a child of God suffers, it's not as a penalty. It's as a benefit. That's why David says, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. An unbeliever can't say that. An unbeliever cannot say, it's good that I was afflicted. The non-Christian never benefits from suffering. God uses the trial to build a Christian's faith and to shape his character and to cultivate his hope. And in the end, Job would grow into a maturity that he had never anticipated. After hearing God's voice later in this very book and being reproved, he would be a better man. He would say, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes seize you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. For that type of spiritual growth, Job needed a period of preparation. He needed to be tested, and he needed to be refined in the furnace of affliction. Does it not highlight for you and I the necessity of God's grip on the believer? You know, the ancient Pelagian and the modern Arminian have it all wrong. It doesn't depend on you, and it doesn't depend on me. If salvation hung on our faith and our efforts, then not one of us would be saved. The only explanation for Job's perseverance is the power of God's grace. The indwelling Holy Spirit enabled him to persist despite his suffering. His complaints and his wishful thinking could easily have turned into despair. But Christ had him in his grip. He would never leave him, never forsake him. This is exactly what he said in John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand, not even them themselves. Well, the third and final section ends Job's lament with a cry of bewilderment. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul? Job's faith and confidence in God are being pushed to the very limit. And those who've never suffered much may have difficult appreciating what's going on here. Because you see, severe and chronic affliction can affect the mind and the heart in significant ways. Job seems to be right at the boundary line that separates faith and apostasy. He's right there. And as we know, by God's grace, Job does not cross that boundary, but he's being squeezed and he's being stretched in unprecedented ways. The Satan thinks that Job is going to crack. God knows that he's going to hold fast. But the stress and the pressure is so great that Job no longer sees purpose in living. The man doesn't eat, but he sighs. The man doesn't drink, but he groans, verse 24. And his worst fears have come true. You can imagine him lying in bed some night before all this happened, thinking, what's the worst thing that could happen to me? All of it, like an avalanche, fell upon him. And he has no rest. He's troubled. 
It's difficult for him to see any light at the end of the tunnel. His faith is strained. His hopes are at a low ebb. His soul is vexed. Oh, what's the point of life, he says. Why does the sun rise upon me? It's a sin-cursed existence and misery. Why does God give life to the bitter in soul? And Christopher Ashe makes a very good point. He's not asking simply, why me? But Job is asking, why isn't this world governed properly? The wicked prosper. The good suffer. God afflicts his friends. I thought I knew God as good, but he seems more like an enemy right now. And in such a bleak situation, I would rather I had never been born. You know, none of us could ever imagine the horrors that were endured by the prisoners in Auschwitz. They were beaten, tortured, executed for the most trivial reasons. Freight trains would deliver Jews from all over to its gas chambers. Of the 1.3 million people who were sent to Auschwitz, 1.1 million of them were executed. Those who weren't gassed died of starvation, exhaustion, disease, or beatings. And still others were killed by means of horrible medical experiments. So like Job, they lost everything. And the believers among them, if they were believers, were stretched to the limit. It seemed as if the Lord had forgotten them. They understood the suffering of Job. They understood it in a way that I don't think we can. Their sorrow was deep and their grief was intense and they had firsthand experience of this world's misery. And it teaches us that Job, his suffering was just as intense and he was barely hanging on to his faith in God and his trust in the coming Christ. Barely hanging on. But he had not been forsaken and he had not abandoned the faith. He knows that he cannot dismiss the Lord. Look what it says in verse 23. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Do you see? He knows that God exists, but he questions what he knows about this God. He believes it's God who governs, but why has he all but destroyed me? The atheist suffers and cannot ascribe it to anything but chance. But Job, on the other hand, still believes in a sovereign God who ordains all things. He doesn't understand why he ordained it, but he knows that he did. What, preser what preserved him were the fundamental truths of God's salvation in Christ. If we were to flip over to Job 19, we discover exactly what is the foundation of his faith. I know that my Redeemer lives, he says, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold. Job need not contemplate anything but the essential doctrines. All scripture is inspired and important. All truths are worthy of study. But when my faith is stretched, it's the gospel that sustains me. 
Did not the Spirit give us four Gospels? Why is there a fourfold witness to Jesus? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are the twin towers of comfort. Job knew that. This is why we should never go too long without reading the Gospels. They give us Jesus. That's where we meet the Savior. That's where we obtain the one thing necessary. And God's grace is invincible. And his love is unwavering. And his people are secure, as Job points out. Jesus accomplished our salvation, and he did not just make it possible. He finished the work that he was sent to do, and eternal life is ours in Christ, just like it was Job's. So I want to draw two observations from this to conclude. First, on a negative note, I think we should observe the awful effects and misery inflicted by satanic forces. You know something, the devil could do nothing apart from the permission of the triune God, but when he was unleashed, look how much misery he inflicted. I am not one, and hopefully I'm not, to overemphasize the power of the evil one. I've known people, I had a good friend, who focused so much attention upon the devil that he paid a heavy price. But we must not swing to the other extreme and underestimate our adversary. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, the rationalist, like the Sadducee, tells us that there is no supernatural. It's silly. He denies the existence of spirits, both good and bad. He denies the existence of the, of the immortality of the soul. He denies the resurrection of Christ. And he explains suffering as a natural part of human experience. We just live in a chaotic world. That's it. He rejects the idea of wicked powers and the spiritual forces of evil. We're born, we live, we die. That's the circle of life and there's nothing more. But friends, there is an unseen world and it's filled with powers that are both good and evil. And the book of Job pulls back the curtain for us and gives us a glimpse of that spiritual realm. And there are satanic forces that are evil and malicious, and they can inflict great damage on the unwary. So be circumspect with regard to evil. What does Jesus say? Be shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves. Paul goes on to say, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You put on the armor of God, stand against the schemes of the devil, and pray without ceasing, because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Secondly, I think we should note that even the best and most eminent believers experience periods of discouragement. Job's lament is proof that sincere worshipers wrestle with providence. It can be confusing, especially when it seems to contradict God's promise. Personal doubts and discouragement are not inconsistent with true faith. Just because somebody's doubting doesn't mean they're not a Christian. A sincere believer's affliction may be so overwhelming that it clouds his hope. 
We have to remember that we're but living dust and creatures of the dirt. The faith of the most mature and seasoned believer is weak and imperfect. Many have been afflicted in body and perplexed in mind and depressed in spirit because they're afflicted. Let me ask you a question. How would you counsel a believer whose faith is shaken by suffering? What would you say? That doesn't mean he's apostate. I think it means that he needs God's grace. And the Lord appointed various means for him to be nourished, strengthened. Job didn't feel God's presence. Job did not feel his everlasting love. There were no warm fuzzies as he suffered, but he knew the truth of God. It must have been hard for him to pray. If he felt anything, he felt God's absence. But he believed the truth of the gospel. He was not governed by his feelings. Affliction plays havoc with the emotions, but the word tells us the truth. So don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing or suffering or affliction, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul exhorts us to think with sober judgment according to the measure of our faith, and with humility we can live the Christian life in whatever situation we find ourselves. Don't let pain and suffering rob you of the great truth of salvation. Jesus was afflicted more than anybody, and he obtained the forgiveness of sins, and through the suffering of the cross, he gained for us eternal and expressible joy. And in Christ, God offers eternal life and never-ending blessedness. That's why Paul can say something like this. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. That's an eternal perspective. And rest assured, no one was ever the loser for trusting in Jesus Christ. May that be an encouragement to all of us this evening. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're, we're pensive as we consider the experience of Job, your servant, how much he suffered, and yet he did not crack because of your grace and your spirit. We thank you for this amazing illustration of the invincibility of divine grace. And we pray that you'll help us to learn from his example and to follow Christ sincerely and to embrace the truth of the gospel and to never let it go. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information, to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.